Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. If you got a Bible and you're staying in here with us this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. We're going to be bouncing around through a little bit of Scripture this morning, and so um, not necessarily camping out in one particular passage. Um, but in Genesis 6 is where we're going to be, as, and, and through 9 really, as we look at, uh, continue to look at some themes that emerge in the story of the flood there in the earliest parts of the Bible. Uh, we've been looking at several themes over the last couple of weeks. We've got a couple of more. Uh, before we move forward in the book of Genesis. Uh, but in Genesis 6 to 9 is where we're going to be this morning as we take a look at another theme that emerges here in this story, and that's the theme of a remnant. A remnant. Now, one of my favorite candies on the face of the earth are M&Ms, like regular plain chocolate M&Ms. My family knows this about me. And so uh, nearly every Christmas, whenever it comes time for stocking stuffers, I always know what to expect in my stocking stuffer, and it's a bag of shareable size bag of M&Ms. And so uh, this past Christmas, sure enough, I open my stocking and pull out the bag of M&Ms, and it's one of the shareable sized bags of M&Ms. And I open that bag on Christmas morning, and I eat a few, and I seal it up, and I put it up into the pantry. Uh, A couple of days later, I go back, and I get a few more, and I I eat them, and I put them, zip them up, put them back in the pantry. Well, a few days after that, I go back into the pantry, and I grab the bag of M&Ms, and I open the bag, and there is a remnant of M&Ms left in the bag, right? A very small quantity of what I had left on the shelf whenever I had placed it back there previously, um, and evidently, one of the other three individuals who lives in my home um, saw the shareable size on the bag, on the, uh, uh, on the packaging, and decided they needed to be shared with them. And so uh, they took the majority of the M&Ms out and left me a small remnant, right? A remnant is essentially a small remaining quantity of something. Okay, it's a small remaining quantity of something. And in this passage, uh, in, in, in Genesis 6 to 9, we see God leaves a remnant behind after he sends judgment. And that theme of the remnant will be woven throughout the rest of the Bible all the way into the New Testament and to the end of the age. And so we want to take a look at that this morning as we consider what truths emerge from this flood story for us that teach us about what God is doing even in our era and why he's doing it. And so the first thing I want us to see from the flood story about this concept of remnant is this, is that God takes the initiative to preserve a people. God preserves a people. If you look at the end of Genesis chapter 5 through the beginning of Genesis chapter 10, what you're going to discover is that this, this whole section of scripture that deals with Noah and his family, that it's mentioned six separate times throughout, uh, that Noah had three sons. So the author mentions it over and over and over again. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, we're told that Noah was 500 years old when he fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
In Genesis 6.10, we're told that Noah, once again, had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis 6.18, whenever God establishes his covenant with Noah, right, and says, I'll preserve you through the flood, right, because he's preserving a people, I'll preserve you through the flood, he's not only making that promise to Noah, but he's also making it to Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis 7.13, we're told that on the day that God commanded Noah to board the boat, the day that it starts to rain, the deluge begins to fall, the waters begin to rise. We're told that he did so along with his wife, his three sons, and their wives. In Genesis 9.18, we're told that the three sons of Noah who went forth from the ark after it rested on the mountains of Ararat were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, we're told that after the flood, Sons that were born to Shem, Ham, and Japheth as they began to repopulate the earth. Not only do we see this in the Genesis story here, but we also fast forward into 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, where Peter speaks of the days of Noah. And he says that a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water because God preserves a people. What this shows us is that despite the way that they have corrupted the earth, we saw that a few weeks ago, and spoiled the earth through their violence and immorality, that God is not done with humanity. That He hasn't given up. He hasn't thrown in the towel. So He sovereignly chooses a people that He would preserve through the coming of His judgment. See, in the story of the flood, God's gracious and He chooses. He sets His favor, His grace upon Noah and Noah's wife and his three sons and their wives. And that is, if you do the math, eight persons that Peter references in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. He's powerful to preserve them as the waters begin to fall and the waters begin to rise and He pours out His judgment on the earth. He's gracious to save some from judgment And he's kind to provide hope of a future renewal because God, the title of this message is God keeps some for himself. He preserves a remnant throughout history. And this preservation of a remnant took place not only in the days of Noah church, but it's taken place in every era of redemptive history. Every era of the Bible. See, remnants in the Bible were small, oftentimes vulnerable communities that were fighting for survival in very harsh, hard, and evil context. So let me give you a few examples. In 1 Kings, in 1 Kings, although the whole nation of Israel had turned aside from God and had begun to worship the gods of the other nations, the Baals, right? God keeps 7,000 who did not bow their knee to the false gods. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 18, after Elijah has this incredible experience in chapter 18 of calling down fire to lick up the offering on the altar and drain all the water from the moat, and then he flees to a cave and says, God, kill me now. Right After all of that's going on, in 1 Kings chapter 9, 18, Elijah is distraught because so many people have violated God's covenant. They've wandered from God and disobeyed God and rebelled against God. And God says this. He says, yet I will, to Elijah, Elijah yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God preserves a remnant even when the entire nation had wandered. 
He preserves a remnant through the Assyrian invasion. At another time in Israel's history, whenever they had wandered from God, God raises up a foreign nation, the nation of Assyria, and sends them in to overrun and overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel. And when he does, he preserves a remnant. And Isaiah writes about that in his prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, Isaiah says this, He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? They were utterly destroyed. Isaiah says, if the Lord had not left us a few, we'd have been like them. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 to 22, Isaiah is speaking of the day in which God would restore the fortunes of of Israel. He says this, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Israel will no more lean on him who struck them. In other words, they'll no longer be dependent upon Assyria. He says, But rather they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. He says, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, like was promised and pledged to Abraham way back in the day, only a remnant of them will return. So through the Assyrian ex- uh, <clears throat> exile, he, invasion, he preserves a remnant. He preserves a remnant through the Babylonian exile because at another point in the nation, in history of God's people, the southern kingdom did not learn from the northern kingdom's idolatry and waywardness. So they continue in their spiritual adultery towards God. And so God raises up the Babylonians, comes in, overthrows the southern kingdom, and takes many away into exile. And Micah writes about this in Micah chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. He says, In that day declares the Lord. He says, In other words, when I restore the southern kingdom, in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant. And those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And Micah at the very end of his book of prophecy in chapter 7 verses 18 to 20 says this. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You have shown faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Last week we talked about God's covenant because God had made a promise to Abraham to make him a nation a great nation, and carried that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Micah says, listen, because of that promise, you have preserved a people. Preserved a people for yourself. In fact, God will be faithful to do that very thing because in the, he brings back a remnant eventually under the leadership of some guys named Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 8 Ezra, the priest, reading before the people, 
He says, but for now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant a little reviving in our slavery. So we've been slaves under the Persian authority and yet God has preserved a remnant, brought us back into the land to reestablish us in the land of our inheritance because we are God's inheritance. He's been faithful to his promise. And listen, today, church, he preserves even a remnant of ethnic Israel as a part of his global universal church. In Romans chapter 11, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, speaking of Israel, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So even now, in this movement of Messianic Judaism... Of, of ethnic Jews coming to faith in Jesus, believing that he indeed is the Messiah, the one whom God had sent. God's preserving a remnant. And he also preserves a remnant of a true church in the midst of an era of apostasy, heresy, and moral decay. Similar to those in the days of Elijah. Those who have not bowed their knees to the gods of our day. See, God always preserves a remnant. He always keeps some for himself. No matter the waywardness of the nations, God preserves a people. And that pattern he establishes first here in Genesis chapters 6 to 9. But why? Why does God act this way? Why did he act this way in the days of Noah? I believe he, acted, he acts this way. God, the reason God preserves a people, church, is for a purpose. He preserves for a purpose. Now, when you and I act with purpose, right, it means that we do something with intention. We do something with a desired objective or outcome. There's something that we want to see come to pass, and so it's what motivates our action. So, for example, okay, if you practice with purpose, then you're practicing to improve your skill, right? Practice a sport like soccer with purpose, you're practicing to improve your foot skills, your understanding of the game, your spacing on the field of where to go with the ball, of how to move it back and forth, up and down the field. If you practice with purpose, you're practicing to improve your skill to perform better whenever you get into the game. That's the purpose, that's the desired objective, that's the intention, Right? Or if you practice a musical instrument, you practice with intention or objective to improve your ability to hit the notes where they're supposed to be. Right? Or if you save and you invest for the purpose of being able to retire one day. Some of us are really questioning that these days, right? But if you save and invest with the purpose, the intention, the objective of being able to retire, right, then retirement motivates your saving and investing because you have an objective. You're doing it purposefully. Now, not all of our actions are done with purpose. Right? Some of them are not with intention. Some of them are like... Wheels off instinct, right? They're not done with very thoughtful, careful, purposeful intention. But we're familiar with doing some things for a purpose, but I tell you that God does everything with a purpose, right? Everything with intention. Everything with objective. With God, there is no action without intention and objective. All of God's actions are motivated by a desired outcome, 
Every single one of them is purposeful. And when God brings judgment upon the earth for the corruption of mankind, He determines to deliver Noah and his family along with a remnant of all living creatures, two by two, into the ark, right into the boat. So not just a remnant of people, but a remnant of all of living, all living flesh to repopulate the earth. And early in Genesis 9, in verses 1 and 7, that create bookends to a section we're going to take a look at in a couple of weeks. But early in Genesis 9, God blesses Noah and Noah's sons. And He gives them the same command that He gave to our first parents in the garden. And He says this in verse 1 of Genesis 9, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then again in Genesis 9-7, God says to Noah, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. When you see the same command repeated twice in seven verses, you ought to recognize that there's some sense of emphasis to that. right? That God's emphasizing something. And I believe what he's emphasizing is the purpose for which he has preserved this people for himself is that they would repopulate the earth, fill the earth in the way that he had given the command to our first parents in the garden. That was the intention with which he preserved them through the judgment of the flood because God was not done with humanity. He wasn't. And he aims to reestablish life on earth. So God preserves a people and he preserves a people for a purpose. Now, as we think about the way that God acts in Genesis 6 to 9, I do believe it establishes a pattern for the way that he continues to act throughout the rest of the Bible. Right? These patterns or these themes that emerge early on in the scriptures, you can trace through the rest of the scripture. And so as we think about what the purpose might be for God preserving a remnant in our day, a true church in a day of apostasy and heresy and moral de- 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 decay, right? what is God's purpose in that? And I think there's one passage of Scripture that's extremely helpful for us as we think about this. In the book of 1 Peter, if you've got a Bible and want to turn there, I encourage you to do so. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes about Jesus, who is the chosen and precious cornerstone that the builders rejected. He says that Christians are like spiritual stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. He says that those who believe on Jesus will never be put to shame. But for those who do not believe, Jesus has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He then goes on in verse 9 to take a handful of Old Testament terms in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. A handful of Old Testament terms and apply them to the church. He writes to the church and he says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. So the church is a chosen people made up of all peoples of the earth. Not one race, but all the races that God has chosen people from to make up His people. 
He's a, they're cho- this chosen people made up of all the peoples of the earth. They're made to be kings and priests. They're set apart for himself as holy. And he makes them his treasured possession. All of this is Old Testament language that Peter's grabbing. And he's saying, this applies to you. To you in the church. So God chooses, he elevates, he sets apart, and he cherishes his church, his people, in the same way that he does to Noah and his sons and all the remnants of redemptive history. He then goes on, listen, here's where the rubber meets the road. He then goes on to give us the purpose for which the church has been chosen to be these things. At the end of verse 9, you read two little words, that you... Now, anytime you see those words, that, you, it often indicates purpose. In other words, what's the purpose behind God's choosing and elevating and cherishing and setting apart of his church? He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, on the basis of this verse, I believe the purpose for which God is preserving his church, all who are truly in Christ today, is that the church would be a people who publish God's perfections. They would publish God's perfections. Now, in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, the word proclaim, it literally means this, to declare, to make known, or to publish. Now, you can write all day, every day, and twice on Sunday, right? In a journal, right? You can record your thoughts about the things that are in your mind and the things that are on your heart, right? You can express yourself in very practical and profound ways as you scribble in your diary, right? That's what little girls keep. Grown men keep a journal, right? That's what we do, right? And so you can write in your journal. You can scribble in your diary. You can draw images that express your emotions or your thoughts. You can write in a word processing program on a computer, right? You can write all of that out and save that document, drop it into a folder that only you have access to. Or you can even now dictate your thoughts, right? Or the message that you're trying to convey through a dictation software platform that's going to take the words that come out of your mouth and it's going to write them onto the page for you, right? How, ah, how, how lazy have we become, right? We move from writing to typing now just to talking and everything just gets done for us, right? But you can dictate your thoughts and message through dictation software and you can do all of this while keeping it all to yourself. Keeping it No one else has access. You can put a lock on your journal or your diary, right? With a key that only you wear around a necklace. So no one else can access your thoughts. No one can access your ideas. You can put it behind encrypt, you can put encrypted files onto your computer so no one else can access those folders in which you've stored all of your thoughts. However, listen, once you publish something, then what you have written you are taking to a wider audience, aren't you? Whenever you publish something, you're saying, I'm no longer hiding this away from the world, but now I'm broadcasting it, sharing 
with, with sharing it with the world. You're taking your thoughts and messages to a public audience. It's no longer private encrypted documents. It's no longer a private enterprise, but now a public one. Now others can read what you have written, what you think. They can now access your message. In other words, to publish something is to declare something or to make something known. It means that you don't keep it to yourself. You don't keep it for yourself. You share it with others. You raise your voice to make it known. You publish it for the public to read. And whenever Peter says that God has made us a chosen, elevated, cherished, and set apart people, he says he's done this so that you and I would not keep our understandings of God, our our the truths that we learn about God and our experiences with God as we walk with Him, that we wouldn't just hide all that away in a journal or a diary, but that we would publish it, that we would make it known, that we would declare those things that we know to be true about Him as He's revealed Himself to us, to others. That's what He's saying, church. So we are intended to publish God's perfections. Now, why do I say perfections? The word excellency in the, in the, in the text there, in verse 9, is actually a plural, excellencies. And it means a moral excellence or virtue or goodness. So what Peter's describing here in the plural are all of God's virtues. All of God's moral goodness, His glorious goodness, all of God's moral perfections, all of the things that God is the goat at, okay? Greatest of all time, right? All of God's perfections are meant to be published by His people. So what are the perfections of God? I believe they're a two-sided coin. They're a two-sided coin. He has his perfections of transcendence and his perfections of imminence. In other words, there are things that make God far removed from us. That's what it means to be transcendent. Somewhere out there, above and beyond, inaccessible. Things like his sovereignty, Right? That he rules over all that he has made. His omniscience, that he knows everything at all times. That he sees the end from the beginning and nothing ever catches him by surprise. His omnipresence, that he is everywhere at all times. He is not in everything like new age naturalists would want us to believe, but he is everywhere. There is not a corner of the globe that we can run to to hide or flee from his presence. His omnipotence, that he's all powerful and can accomplish and achieve his ends in his time by his ways. That he is holy, that he is absolutely and infinitely set apart from us, righteous and pure and just. Right? All of these things make God transcendent. In our experience with him. But there's also the perfections of his imminence. Because in his imminence he comes very close. He comes very and becomes very intimate with us. As he chooses to be. 
and the perfections of his eminence are things like his compassion and his mercy and his grace. That indeed he's moved like Jesus. We see in the life of Jesus who is moved with compassion because he sees the crowds who are lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They have no one to guide them and no one to lead them. Lead them. And so his heart is wrenched for them. He's merciful in that he withholds that which we do deserve. He's gracious in that he he gives that which we don't deserve. He's loving and he's kind and he is generous. All these perfections of his eminence. They're a two-sided coin. And these are the types of perfections that we are intended to publish to the world as we speak about who God is and who has revealed himself to be as he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now Jared Wilson, who is an author in residence at Midwestern Seminary, in reflecting on Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, which tells us that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, Right? So the shining brilliance, the bright light of the glory of God that we've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, into His radiance. He's reflecting on Hebrews 1.3 and he writes about the excellencies of Christ here. And I, I, I can't say it any better than he can. In fact, I can't say a whole lot of things very well. But he says it very well in an article that he's written. And I want to read it to you. Listen to what he has to say. He says, all that God is... The measureless sum of his eternal and eternally rich attributes shines forth in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. Jesus is supremely radiant. What does this mean? He asks. It means that this bright morning star from Revelation twenty two twenty six will be the sun of the new heavens and the new earth. We won't need this old sun. We will have the Lamb as our lamp, Revelation 21, 23. And it means that even now, the Son of Righteousness, who has risen with healing in His wings, Malachi 4, 2, must be the center of our spiritual solar system or everything else goes out of whack. Indeed, if we were to kick our Son out from the center of our system, we wouldn't just have chaos, but death. Life would be unsustainable. So it is with Jesus. If he's not the center, we die. Also, like the sun's beams, the radiating lines of the sun's glory are too numerous to count. Ever tried to count sunbeams, he asks? You can't do it. It's like counting airwaves in the wind. He says, Jonathan Edwards said that in Christ we find an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. These diverse excellencies are the sunbeams of his magnificence finding their unity in him as they, though contrasting, converge and emanate back the imprinting of the nature of God. He is the lion and the lamb. He's the lamb and the shepherd. He is the shepherd and the warrior. 
He is the warrior and the priest. He is the priest and the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice and the victor. He is the victor and the servant. He is the servant and the king. He is the king and the convicted. He is the convicted and the judge. He is the judge and the advocate. Diverse excellencies, each pair which seem to be set against one another, yet complementary to each other, finding their admirable conjunction in Him. And there's so much more. John says, if all the things that Jesus did during His earthly ministry were written down, that all the books on earth could not contain them all. Is it any wonder then that we will take all eternity to bask in the radiance of His glory? The excellencies of God in Christ. They're not just intended to be written on the pages of our journal, but seen on the pages of our lives as we publish them for the world to see. Why is God preserving His church today for that purpose? Let me ask you a question this morning, church. Do you publish the perfections of God in your home? Do you speak of His excellencies around your dinner table? Do you tell your children of His compassion? Do you speak to your spouse of His splendor? Listen, I for one know that I do not enough. Do you publish them in your life groups? Listen, do you speak of the perfections, the excellencies of God and make them known to the people that you are closest with in Christian community? Right? Do the, is the name of Jesus, is the person of the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit, are they on your lips in the context of your Christian community? Do you speak of the excellencies of God with people that you know, that you know and trust? Listen, if we cannot speak of the excellencies of God with people that we know and trust, we will never speak of the excellencies of God with people who are far from Him. We, and listen, we cannot make the perfections of God known to one another unless we're in relationship with people. And the way that we do that here at Redeemer is through, a, through our small groups, which we call life groups. Places that we're able to share what the Lord is teaching us. The things He's convicting us of. The things He's revealing to us about Himself through His Word. That we're able to publish the excellencies, the perfections of God. So that others may see and be encouraged by them of what God is showing and doing in our own lives. Do you publish them in your school, students? Do you speak of the truth of God and the grace of God? Right? Because Jesus is one who is full of both grace and truth. Right? He is the lion who roars and the lamb. He is <clears throat> who is sacrificed. He is the king and the servant simultaneously. And so do you advocate for truth in your schools while also extending grace to those who do not believe as you do? Do you publish the excellencies of Christ in your neighborhood? Adults, 
in your workplaces? Do you speak of his kindness and his holiness? Do you talk of his mercy and his justice? As opportunity arises in the context of those relationships, are you publishing the perfections of God? If we are not publishing the perfections of God, then we are not fulfilling the purpose for which God has preserved us. We are chosen, elevated, cherished, and set apart to proclaim His excellencies and make them known. Because we're not in the dark anymore. We're in His light. And that light diffuses through our lives to encourage others in the church and to testify and witness to those who are apart from God and Christ. We're publishing His perfections. See, God has always been preserving a remnant. That pattern starts in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. It, it, It is woven through every page of the Bible as He's always keeping some for Himself. And He's always doing that for a purpose. I want to pray for us this morning that we would be faithful to fulfill the purpose for which He's preserving us in this age. Let's pray together, church. This morning, Father, we come thanking You for Your sustaining grace. We know that apart from it, that we would fall apart, that we would wander without Your preservation. But that God, out of your grace, you've, you have chosen to keep some for yourself. In the same way that you did in Noah's day. In the same way that you did in Elijah's day. In the same way that you did in Isaiah and Micah's day. In the same way that you did in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. You are doing today. You have preserved a remnant. A true church. And Father, despite what happens globally, despite what happens nationally, despite what happens locally, may we be a people who know who we are. That we've been chosen by you, elevated by you as kings and priests. We've been set apart by you as a holy nation. And we have become those that you cherish because of your Son and our Unity with Him by faith. We are your treasured possession. So may we publish your perfections for the world to see. May we encourage one another with the excellencies of who you are in the context of our relationships. Father, if we're not in a, in a setting where we're pressing our lives into the lives of other believers on a regular basis in the context of Christian community, in a place where we can know and be known, where we can share encouragement, receive encouragement, where we can speak about your perfections and encourage others and listen to others speak about your perfections and be encouraged by them. May you help us take that step this week. Help us to speak of your perfections in schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. 
Because we no longer live in darkness, but in the radiance of the light of the glory of Christ. And may the sunbeams that shine upon our lives be diffused through us to others. May we not keep who you are and what you're teaching us locked away in journals and diaries or encrypted files, but maybe it may it be published for all the world to see. And we fulfill the purpose for which you're preserving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, this morning I invite you to stand as we respond to what God has said to us in song. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.